Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 212 for the 2nd of September, 2015. I'm Chester Wisniewski, back with my colleague, Paul Ducklin. Hello, Chester. You have been in Queensland, Australia, haven't you? At a fighting cybercrime convention. I got around a bit. I was in Canberra, I was in Newcastle, I was in Sydney, I was in Brisbane, and I was in the Gold Coast, which, as you say, was to work with the Queensland Police Service on a fighting cybercrime and fraud event. And you met, and indeed I have a photograph of you getting a small hugette from Fiscal the Fraud Fighting Ferret. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Fiscal the Fraud Fighting Ferret, despite the fact that it's rather difficult to say. Um, and, and I have seen better URLs. I was thinking as a gift for him, perhaps I might send a, a, a domain name his direction. But um, for those of you that are interested, you can learn more at www.fiscalthefraudfightingferret.com.au if there's enough room in your URL bar. Or you could go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com and just type in fiscal. There's actually a great Fiscal the Ferret video about how to spot that an ATM has been modified with skimmers pin pads, pinhole cameras, that sort of stuff. Very cleverly and accessibly done. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of the outreach the Queensland Police Service has in general, which is why, of course, I was down there speaking at their event, bringing law enforcement, uh, private security companies like ourselves, and, and the public as well, all together in one place to figure out uh, what we can share with one another to be better educated and hopefully be more successful at fighting crime and fraud on the internet. So that was great uh, working with the police down there. I appreciate the invitation to come out every year. Yes, and it's amazing that at that event, that's where things come out in the wash that sound very small but can have quite a big effect, such as having guys along from, say, Western Union, meeting people who've been victims of say, romance scams, and figuring out new ways of helping their agents explain to people why they probably shouldn't remit money, even though it's there, they can do so if they wish. Yeah, in fact, Western Union won an award this year for uh, their commitment to these events and their participation and the, uh, the positive impact they've had on protecting victims in Australia by getting some of the rules changed, like warnings on the the thing uh, that you fill out in order to wire money to someone, uh, telling people about scams and, and uh, raising awareness over the issue. Yes, you know, people. it's easy for people to say, oh, well, companies like Western Union, they should just stop this happening. But if I'm determined to send my own money to someone that I don't know, that is my choice. And, you know, they're, they're trying to tread this thin line of giving sage advice, not shattering somebody's dreams but also helping them not to waste their money. So all the news while we were uh, out for the last couple of weeks, clearly there's been a lot of developments around the Ashley Madison story. Uh, <laughs> well, you were out. <laughs> I wasn't. I was writing up a whole load of that stuff because it just keeps coming, doesn't it? Uh, the unfortunate thing that kind of developed that I was hoping wasn't going to happen while I was traveling was the actual publication of the full data set. You know, initially when the story broke, it was a sampling of the records to say, here's proof that we've done this. And that was kind of uh, bad enough, I guess. And, And even worse now, all of the victim's information seems to be out there. Yes. What kind of a public service are you providing if you take data that you jolly well know is stolen, the accuracy and the validity of which you cannot vouch for and then make it sort of pruriently searchable, even if the email address is in the list, doesn't actually prove anything. 
Yeah, I mean, we, we are talking about criminals here publishing this stuff too. So that list could be seeded with information from anywhere. I mean, how do, there, there's no provenance to it. And even if there were, is it really any of your business to go rifling through stolen stuff? That's kind of the bigger thing here. It is. And I think the idea that you that it's easy to take data and say, well, I didn't steal it. I just got hold of it. And now I'm going to make this super searchable interface. I don't get that. I don't like it. I don't approve of it. And you should avoid going to sites that claim to offer you automatic searching of the Ashley Madison data. Though there is a silver lining to a degree in this cloud. The data, at least, uh, that was leaked included password hashes, which is a common thing we do talk about in these breaches and is something maybe a little more ethical to to analyze. I know in the past you've looked at uh, how many passwords were able to be easily breached with dictionary attacks in, in some previous uh, uh, hacks. And in this case, uh, it looks like they may have actually been following industry standard practices around protecting passwords. Our friend and colleague Mark Stockley wrote it up on Naked Security under the title, What Ashley Medicine Got Right. Determined to find a silver lining, and there it was. They stored the password hashes using bcrypt, which is a key derivation function using salting, hashing, lots and lots of iterations in order to make each password guess take a long time. Guess what? It worked. Uh, A chap tried to crack them, and he was only able to get through something like 70 million guesses in close to a week. So it made a big difference. He he only got out about 4,000 passwords, and they were all the terrible stuff you shouldn't choose. One, two, three, four, five, six. Password, and so forth. So guys, don't do that. Well, that's an important reminder as well when we're talking about hashing. Is I mean, hashing isn't uh, a foolproof thing to protect the information. Hashing buys you time. Indeed. And of course, we shouldn't have to say this, but we shall. Don't use the same password on more than one site because you don't necessarily know that those guys on site A are using Bcrypt or PBKDF2 or Scrypt or some decent way of hashing and storing the passwords that make them hard to recover. Precisely. Now, uh, while we're talking about information breaches, I'm going to switch tasks here over to Wyndham Hotel Group. Oh, they're a sort of bête noire of yours, aren't they? Yeah. You wrote about them some years ago. Exactly. I think this is, you know, this case has been going ongoing for maybe four more years now. That's right. 2008, 2009 was when the breach happened. Yeah. And I, I think the dispute with the American Federal Trade Commission began in about 2011 even. So this has really been happening for, for an extended period now. For those that weren't following it closely, uh, in essence, uh, the Wyndham Group was breached with some credit card thieving malware at their hotels. I guess initially they did some cleanup and then were reinfected and didn't really do anything policy-wise or change any measures. And in fact, they were infected for an extended period of time and were aware of being infected. Uh, and didn't really take the necessary action in order to protect their customers' credit card information. So the U.S. uh, Federal Trade Commission tried to find them, and um, they fought back. They sued the FTC saying, you don't have the regulatory authority, which was very different than other companies had done where they had quietly uh, admitted no wrongdoing but paid a fine. Yes, it's a strange defense, isn't it? And it didn't work (laughs) in the end, as you pointed out. 
Well, what's really important about this, though, is it's a precedent-setting case in the United States. Of course, uh, the U.S. legal system uh, often relies on precedent uh, to, you know, to determine how a law is to be interpreted and where these fuzzy lines of regulators lie, like what are they able to regulate and what aren't they. And the fact that this is on the books and it's gone all the way through the system, I have to say thank you to Wyndham for spending all that money because now we kind of know a little better where those lines are. And apparently one of the things we've learned is the FTC can and, uh, and will, in fact, look out for consumers' interests, even in the cyber world. So it seems that Wyndham's defense was along the lines of, you can't tell us what to do. And anyway, you didn't really tell us because it wasn't that clear because this has never happened before. And the court has vigorously disagreed. It's actually a great judgment to read because the court lists a series of things that Wyndham did wrong that allowed the breach to become so bad. Things like watching your logs, things like having solid policy and procedure about how you decide who's allowed to have remote access, using things like two-factor authentication. Amazingly, it's all there in the legal judgment. The courts absolutely got it. Yeah, that was another encouraging thing when I read the judgment as well, because uh, often in these cases, the courts seem a little out of touch with modern technology and and uh, understandably so. I mean, especially in higher courts where you have to be on the bench for many years to ascend to those levels, um, that means you're older and you probably have less familiarity with some of this cutting-edge technology that the criminals are using in order to, to breach our systems. There was one item in the judgment that I don't think you need to be an IT expert to realize what a bad idea it is, and that is that there was a remote access component that was provided by a company called Micros, which had a password of Micros. Yeah, and I think many of us think that in these large companies, our information is you know protected better than small ones. You go, well, the little hotel down the street that's run by mom and pop, I, you know, I can understand that their credit card processing terminals have a default password. But of course, if I stay at the you know insert large chain here, you know Hyatt, Hilton, Marriott, Wyndham, whatever it is. I must be safe because they're a big corporation and they would never make that mistake. And uh, I think the court here said that they shouldn't be making that mistake and are holding them accountable for it, which is good. They did indeed. In fact, in the judgment, there's also a bit where it's all, you could just about hear the judges saying, are you seriously telling me that you connected these two networks together? What is wrong with you? <laughs> I mean, it was like reading a naked security article. I was delighted. <laughs> So I'm saying, why on earth is this all in one giant heap of attackability when you actually explicitly mentioned in your privacy policy that you use firewalls in order to keep things apart where they're not supposed to be together? So if, if it beggared the belief of the court, then it should beggar the belief of all of us. Well, and I'm going to use this as an opportunity to anger some of our listeners so they can email me if they wish, chesterw at sophos.com, because... I would say, you know, it's sort of like running a browser with Flash enabled. Um, in the last couple of weeks, we've had three Flash zero days, and it's starting to feel, um, it's starting to feel a little long in the tooth uh, to have Flash enabled in the browser anymore. Uh, I certainly have had mindset to click to play for a very long time. There are certain things online that still require Flash, um, but I'd rather it not just happen to me. And, and it seems like maybe the tide's turning. I think the answer to that is kind of yes and no, Chester, because in the last short while, both Amazon and Google have said, you know what, no more Flash ads, guys. Amazon will not accept Flash ads. I think AdWords, no Flash ads, and Google Chrome will trigger click-to-play on Flash ads by default. 
However, it seems that their reason for getting rid of Flash ads is on Amazon's part, too many people are blocking them, so they're not working. Uh, And on Google's part, hey, it tends to flatten your battery. So unfortunately, neither of them said we're doing this for security purposes. Uh, They're doing it for sort of simplification, streamlining, and making ads work better. But the side effect is that maybe we can get away, all get away with one less plugin. We can use HTML5 instead. Whether you love it or hate it, it's in your browser anyway. I'm going to continue along the controversial side of things here and say that I think all ads should be Flash. And that way, when I disable Flash in my browser, I no longer see them. There is one problem with click to play Chester, and that is that as far as the other end is concerned, your browser still supports Flash. And so a lot of sites, if they see you've got Flash installed, they'll try and use it. Click to play comes up. And therefore, what I think a lot of users, if you look at comments on Naked Security, are inferring is that that site still needs Flash. Whereas if you actually disable Flash or uninstall it and go back to the site, the video will play anyway without Flash. So I think a lot of people keep Flash because they think they need it. And unfortunately, the reason they think they need it is click-to-play kind of draws attention to flashiness. Yeah, I I agree. I I have uh, noticed the same thing. And in fact, that's why my primary browser, Firefox now, I have Flash removed from it entirely. And uh, if I need Flash, I can load up Chrome, which has an integrated Flash player. Uh, as and as we like to do, we'll wrap up with the law enforcement side of things, I guess, law and order, if you will. And I don't know that you can get much lower than our, our friend. I know where you're going. <laughs> the spam king. Oh, dear. There was, a, there was a cry of joy in Sophos Labs when this uh, story broke. Sanford Wallace, uh, his, his legal name, although he's often referred to as Spamford, was found guilty in a San Jose court this week. I think he owes close to a billion dollars, in fact, in in civil judgments, uh, reading through the story. That's how I remember. I think they started with four million and figured that's got to put the frighteners on him. And when that didn't work, they tried 200. When that didn't work, they tried 700. Now you'd have to imagine he's going to get a custodial sentence. We're not surprised when uh, hardened criminals uh, go back and, and, you know, end up being incarcerated a second time. And I think we probably shouldn't be surprised if we hear from Spamford Wallace again uh, in Naked Security or in the podcast. I mean, yeah, he's going to do some time, but uh, he doesn't seem like the quite the type that's going to learn from his mistakes. He can go on and on about how he can't help himself, but uh, he's guilty of fraud now, as far as I know. Yeah, uh, 27 million Facebook messages across a half million Facebook users' accounts is what he was convicted on this time. My last thought on this is just really entertained that in the legal documentation, his aliases are listed as the Spam King, Spamford, and David Fredericks. (laughs) (laughs) Nonetheless, that concludes Sofa Security Chat Chat 212. As always, for all the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available via RSS on iTunes, the TuneIn app, or uh, wherever fine podcasts are found, including soundcloud.com slash sofa security. Until next time, stay secure.